Hello, and welcome to Found TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from those who built them. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined by the mysterious, the lovely, Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I'm, you know, hanging in there. What about you? Oh, you know, we're recording this on a Friday. Looking forward to the weekend. I know. Oh, fantasizing about the weekend. But thankfully, regardless of what day of the week you're listening to this episode, we've got a good show for you today. Today, we're talking to Neil Batlavala from Pair Team, a virtual and community-based primary care solution connecting Medicaid's highest risk patients to the care that they need. We had such a fun conversation with Neil, and we talked about everything from how Neil's experience in health tech led him to this idea, how regulatory issues will dictate how the business will grow, and how he thinks about doing well financially while also doing good in the world. And here's our conversation with Neil. Hey, Neil, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well this morning. How about yourselves? Can't complain. Halfway through the week. Fun time of the year. Definitely a busy time of the year. What a fun time of the year. Yeah, yeah. But we're happy to have you on the show today. Just before we dive into some of the other questions, if you want to start by telling us a bit about Pair Team. Yeah, of course. So maybe just a bit of background on myself. I'm an engineer by trade, was before that just a kid from India, came to the US and thought I'd be a doctor, found bits and bytes, fell in love and decided to go down the healthcare technology path. And during that time, spent a few years building out a tech-enabled primary care network. So your, your first, your doctor's office. What does a doctor's office look like if you put a lot of technology and kind of make it tech-enabled? Had a lot of fun. And after a few years there, said, how can we take all of that technology with my clinical co-founder, Cassie, and bring it to underserved communities? Kind of the communities that we were really passionate about and that we have a duty to serve. And so this led us to Pair Team. In the simplest way, what we do is we partner with shelters, with food pantries, with rehab facilities in the community, and we turn them into a site of care. So we increase access points for care within the community. This is because you have individuals that when you're in these underserved areas and you have so much going on in your head, you're trying to think about how do I balance, you know, going to pick up my kids from school versus, you know, using the bus to go to the doctor's office. You're generally not going to the doctor's office. Your health is deprioritized. And so we make it really, really easy for you by going to these social support organizations, the organizations that you're already going to, to receive the care you need. And that's super interesting. I've looked up a little bit about your background and I'm pretty familiar with the company you came from. And one of the gripes I've always had with them is that, and I think you might have this as well, is that it's bringing the tech that everyone needs to the group of people who could probably afford it anyway. So it's interesting to kind of take that type of a model and bring it down to the people, like you said, who do need it the most and who are probably the most likely to be deprioritizing this type of care. But I'm definitely curious because those organizations that you're working with, food pantries and shelters and the like, they have so much going on. Like they're such busy organizations. They have tight budgets. Seems like one of the harder areas to work in the term of like public good or civil service. And I'm curious, like, what is it like partnering with these groups and kind of like how has that been setting up these partnerships to kind of get into those different organizations? 
Yeah, yeah, you hit a lot of interesting topics there. One is, you know, technology should be a tool for access. It drives unit costs down to zero, right? So you're able to use this technology to retrofit these organizations and actually increase access for these different services in the community. Now, one of the key problems here, and this is just across the country, we do not have enough social support services to meet the demands of our communities. There's just not enough beds in the shelter. There's just not enough food, you know, not enough meals being delivered. And so how do you increase that fundamental lack of supply? You need to have financial resources that go there. And like you said, Becca, these are very tightly, you know, constrained budgets. They run off of a spiky grant funding and that grant funding, you know, they got to fight tooth and nail for it. Then they got to stretch every dollar. What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring these organizations into the healthcare payment model mm. so they can get paid on healthcare dollars, use those dollars to then reinvest in themselves and expand their social support services, which means that they can serve more patients and more individuals in the community, which then means they can get access to more healthcare dollars there. But it's basically trying to start that flywheel. So when we go up to these organizations and we say, hey, for free, you know, we do this all for free. When we go to them, we say, actually, we're going to help drive revenue to you. We're going to give you a new revenue stream by becoming a part of the healthcare system. They've kind of received it with open arms. Now, of course, there's a lot of skepticism up front. It's, right. it's almost like too good to be true. And, you know, in the, in the early days, it was, you know, you had to find some of the right believers and they, you know, you got to show them that we're kind of cut from the same cloth. We're a mission driven organization at our bones and it worked and it's working. And um, now we're taking that to just more of these, what you call community-based organizations around the country. Yeah. Every time I hear about how things that people need are lacking in this country, I'm always like, where's the government? You know, because I'm like, these are, oh, I mean, come on, like, where, <laughs> where, where are they? And so when I hear about this, because this is obviously brilliant, it's like, what is the role of the government here in kind of helping you, helping these organizations with an issue like this? Yeah, it's, this is actually, I will say, healthcare innovation, at least in the U.S., is largely driven by government unlocks. So over the past 10 years, you've had a really big focus on Medicare, you know, over, over the age of 65. And now what we're really seeing is, is Medicaid's regulatory moment. So, Tom, one clear thing that the government had to do just to make this possible was they had to allow healthcare dollars to be spent on non-healthcare things, that just wasn't possible, you know, a few years ago. That's been part of a, a growing wave of pilot programs and then the government saying, you know what, this is real, this makes sense. And one of the drivers from the government side is ultimately to keep people out of the hospital. Hospitals are really expensive. When you go to the hospital unnecessarily, you know, if you are an individual experiencing homelessness and you're just looking for a, you know, a, a place to go that's warm, get out of the cold, get out of the heat, get a sandwich, you'll go to the emergency room. You don't need to be there. But it's because we haven't invested in the shelter services or the temporary housing services around there. And it's way more expensive to pay for that emergency department visit than it is to pay for a temporary housing service. And so this was the, the government's role was saying, one, we can use healthcare dollars for non-clinical services. And now, in a second, they're actually starting to promote these models of care. And it's all under the umbrella of what you call social determinants of health or health-related social needs. So the government loves its acronyms. Healthcare loves its acronyms, SDOH or HRSNs. <laughs> that, that has been the driving force here. So what you're seeing at a state-by-state -state level is 
the government coming in and saying, hey, look, let's allocate programs and allocate dollars to fund community-based programs to get more care out in the community setting. And that's what's enabled us because the truth of how decisions are made is it's largely compliance driven. It's largely saying, hey, what does the State Department want me to do? What does the government want me to do? I am a health plan. I want to keep my State Department happy. I'm just going to do what they say. And thankfully, they're saying, let's help get community-based organizations into the care delivery system. It's encouraging to know that the government's doing these innovative ways of helping others. <laughs> I feel like all the news is so bad, but this is good. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're good. There's a, in fact, I, I will say we should very much expect more influence of government in Medicaid. So more Medicaid policy changes for the better here over the next 10 years. Particularly, for example, we, we have a seat at the table at a round table in D.C., where it is all about Medicaid innovation and ultimately how to get more investment capital into Medicaid. Medicaid's incredibly underinvested when you look at it from a venture capital lens. And so the intent is to get, you know, entrepreneurs like myself, along with policymakers, along with the buyers, the, the health plans and venture capitalists all sitting around saying, well, how do we drive more of this innovation and do it, you know, do well while doing good, so to speak. And since you brought it up, I was going to ask about it a little bit later, but I am mean, always curious with companies like yourselves that do sort of work with these pools of government money and these kind of like in the umbrella, the government umbrella organizations and things like that. With this being a venture backed business, was it hard to raise funding? And how does the business model work in a way where venture capitalists like would be interested? They do love to kind of ignore these companies sometimes that people seem to need the most. So I am curious like what that all looks like. Yeah, no, I mean, it is definitely a lot of education. Mm. Not many folks know about, you know, in particular, as you get with government contracts and with working with Medicaid plans and just these bigger organizations, sales cycles can be a little bit longer. And there's this bias to think that there is no money here. And the reality is that Medicaid is the largest health insurer in this country. There's some $800 billion that go down here. It is larger than most consumer markets. And so there is capital there. It's been there because it's been slowly inflating in costs over the past 10, 20 years. And that's kind of the problem in and of itself. But there is dollars. It does take that education there. And then in terms of what individuals are looking for, one, we are looking for investors that are, you know, have that mission-driven attitude here. Yes, we are trying to make a sustainable, financially sound business that can scale really, really large. But at the same time, you need to understand that although we'll get the scale and we'll get kind of the innovation there, sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer, especially in these like more rural, more local communities. It can't just be a blast out. You know, it's not a, we turn on a website and suddenly, you know, we see a bunch of traffic go in. Right. Because when you're scaling this sort of work, you need to be a lot more intentional. You need to be a lot more just slow to approach because these organizations on the ground, these community organizations, they're, you know, they're skeptical. Folks have tried to take advantage of them, right? Individuals on Medicaid have been tried to get scammed and fraud. And so when you go into a market, you need to be slower. And so we tell our investors, like, this is the time horizon we're looking at. This isn't going to happen over the next two years. We're going to be the scale. Like, we're building a company for the next 10 plus years. And so we got to be patient with us. But the opportunity is massive. The ultimate addressable market is backed by this $800 billion capital that's going into Medicaid. So there is a very, very large opportunity. The health of our underserved has been very, very underinvested. And since you mentioned a little bit about the different types of areas you guys are targeting, like urban areas, rural areas, 
how did you guys decide where to launch this or kind of like where to initially target? What does it look like to actually set something like this up? Like if I go into one of these organizations that you partner with, like what would I actually see or sort of how would I interact? Yeah. So it goes back to Dom's question on government. We follow the government programs that are dropping state by state. So Medicaid, it's half federally funded and half funded at a state level. And each state has its own rules and regulations. Yeah, there's conformity and some amount of standardization. But when you're on the edge, like we are, it all happens at a state level. And so our first market was California. California invested a significant amount of capital to say, hey, everyone, We want to push for more community-based care models. We want to care for our highest need individuals. We want to care for those experiencing homelessness, severe mental illness, substance use, those, you know, transitioning from incarceration. Now healthcare system, build the networks, build the referral pathways, all of that. So there was a lot of what I like to say, the surround sounds in California was very prime. Everyone was talking about the same thing. We came in and basically what we said to the health plans is we said, so many of these community organizations can't do this work. The capital is there. But when you look at on the ground, and Becca, this goes back to the very beginning of what you said is these organizations are kind of running around with their heads cut off. They can't come up from air. They're just trying to keep the lights on and all of it. So even though this stuff was happening, they had no idea. And this is not like 10% didn't have any idea. 90% didn't have any idea. Only the really big shelters or food pantries, the ones that got a ton of grant funding because they've been, you know, just, there's just like the larger enterprise versions of these organizations. They knew but everyone else didn't. And so we said, we can help enable those organizations. We'll partner with those organizations. And it just so happens these organizations are in the the highest need areas. Mm. They're the ones that are working with the patients that are the hardest to reach for you. And so in that way, the health plans went, you know, this is kind of a win-win for us. And so we started, our first market was in the Inland Empire, for example, with two of the big major health plans down there. And getting going. I flew down there, knocked on doors, tried to meet people, show them that you know we were real people trying to help them. And then what it looks like at one of these organizations as we go in and we help first upskill their staff. So we, we enable them to become certified healthcare providers, not, not licensed providers, like they can't do prescriptions or anything like that. Think of it like the front desk staff or the front office staff. We help upskill them to get, you know, just basic health education, health navigation support, helping individuals advocate for their health. And it's all under this type of certification called community health worker certification. So that's the first thing. And in a way, what we're doing is we're giving their staff at these organizations a career path there beyond just being volunteers. Now they have another career path to go down. So they they like that. And then we wrap the entire organization with our own telemedicine-based medical group. So we have registered nurses, we have nurse practitioners, we have behavioral health specialists, MDs, and they're all available over telemedicine around this clinic, around this community organization. So someone walks in the door to the pantry the front office there, who's now trained, can recognize, hey, look, this is someone who has some clinical needs or has a social health need and you know we can help them. Let's get them enrolled in Pair Team's program. So they'll then send it off to one of our nurses. Our nurses will authorize it. And then we'll have a visit with that patient all over the phone, all over text. We'll help build up a care plan. That care plan could be, hey, let's help support you for housing to a housing provider. Let's find a couple of temporary housing facilities around you. Let's get you scheduled. Let's help you with the interview prep process for all of it. Let's make sure you have all your documents. We're the ones, you know, supporting all of these things and really being proactive about it to follow up on this care plan. And then we, you know, 
hopefully, knock on wood, that works out, or we'll keep going and trying other housing providers in the area. And at the same time, that's a social care intervention. We'll also have clinical care interventions like, hey, also sounds like you had, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to manage your diabetes. Well, let's try to get you connected to healthy grocery delivery services or, you know, try to educate you on what is healthier eating look like and just be that support system. The largest thing I think we do for individuals, though, is really support their mental health, particularly in these communities. You just don't have a lot of support around you. You know, you're trying to make, you know, make ends meet for yourself, for your family. You know, I might be a single mom here and we are a support that's just always there. One of the big rules of social work is you can't care more than the patient. And so if the patient is coming back to us, we'll always be there for them. So we say, hey, look, you know, it sounds like you've been dealing with some amount of addiction here. Do you want help? And if you want help, we're here for you 24-7. Give us a call. Give us a text. And if we haven't heard from you for a little while, we'll follow up. We'll be, you know, Cassie, my, my co-founder, calls this lovingly persistent. Hmm. And that's what we are. So we are we're just the support system there. So a lot of it is, you know, just just picking up the phone when they call and following up when you haven't heard from someone in a little bit because they've got a million and one things on their mind. Right. That's what it looks like on the ground. Now, you only operate in California right now, right? That is correct. Yeah. So only out in California, but raised around the financing, a $9 million Series A financing to take it nationally. Yeah, I was going to ask, what does expansion look like for you? (laughs) (laughs) So California happens to be one of the states that is what they call this Vanguard regulatory state. So it It does all the regulations before anyone else. So all the other states kind of look at it to say, okay, what's working, what's not working in California? So California invested a bunch of dollars into building out these community models. We're now seeing that same regulatory wave kind of flow through to other states. So it starts more with the blue states first, but even there is bipartisan support. So even red states are seeing this, seeing these policy changes come into play. And so there are a variety of states on the horizon here. So we're definitely going to expand into at least one this coming year, 2024. Which one exactly is still TBD? But, you know, there's a couple of bigger ones coming. Things like New York, Kentucky, Illinois. There's, there's, a, there's a variety of options because, like I said, this is Medicaid's regulatory moment. This is the big thing here is connecting our social care and our clinical care together under one system. And we want to help do that. I love to think of Medicaid being in its moment. <laughs> it's Medicaid's like, era. Good for her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Part of the education for investors as well, saying, hey, look, and it's built on decades of, of a ton of great work of individuals and pilot programs and, and evidence building for these interventions to showing that this stuff works. When you help address a social health issue, you help build trust with an individual. That trust is the very basis by which you can then get them to do behavior change to live a healthier life right? Like without that trust, you're just another person telling them what to do and they've already got a million and one things to do. And so that trust is really what makes this all work. The fact that we can go to the community organizations that have been around for decades in that, in that neighborhood, their neighborhood organization, they've been there forever and they just know everyone by name. And so we deal in the currency of trust, so to speak. And we kind of have a culture in our team to make sure we never break that. And we move at a pace that never breaks that. Yeah, I was going to ask how a red state, blue state divide impacts your company at all. Because, I mean, I'm from Florida and I'm from a red county, but the lines to the food banks are always like really long because it's like this is an issue that impacts everybody. But I wonder if you've faced any tension, red state, blue state tension? Yeah, I mean, there's more skepticism. So the biggest way to look at it is you look at Medicaid expansion and is the state expanding Medicaid coverage there? And you're having a variety of red states that are also expanding Medicaid 
coverage here. I will say for what we do in particular, there is skepticism, right? You know, like a, a state like Florida, it's a little bit more conservative. You're gonna have to pull a little bit harder and push the boulder a little bit harder to make it happen. But at the end of the day, it's cost containment. It's the fact that each of these states, if you look at the state budgets within the top one or two items, it's either education or it's the Medicaid cost. And that's top two line items for the entire state. So when you look at the governor of that state, they're going, when I'm looking out for my next you know, couple of years, how do I contain those costs? And we finally have a mechanism to do it by addressing you know, both social and clinical services together to keep people out of the hospital. And that reduces costs. That not only improves the patient experience, right? Like going to the emergency room is terrible. Going to the hospital is terrible. It's, it's scary. So drastically improving their life and their well-being, but also doing well for the financial system around you. So it does come down to a lot of the finances here. And, you know, that's just, that's the reality of some of it. So I, I don't shy away from talking about the dollars and cents of this work, but that is a driving force in all of it. And ultimately it's better to spend $2 you know, or a dollar in a social support organization than $10 at the emergency room. And now we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. And something I wanted to ask you about is because I know when you talked about sort of like your background and coming to this idea originally, you wanted to work in health tech and like you originally thought you were going to be a doctor and sort of like in this healthcare space, which of course Pair Team is, but you guys also do all this other stuff like you just mentioned, like helping people find housing and helping people with some of like their other needs that all do at the end of the day play into their overall health. But did you know going into this that you were going to also try to like loop in all of these other benefits or sort of all these other things you could help out potential users, patients with. How did you come to this model that in- does include so much beyond just healthcare too? So I kind of consider all this healthcare. When you look under the hood, I would say that the social, these community organizations have been a part of the healthcare system, whether they were formally recognized for it or not for forever. But to answer your question, when we came into this, after working at a primary care network forward and helping to build that up, one thing is super clear is that healthcare is very human. You're only as strong as the care team that you have on board because they're they're on the front lines. They're talking with your patients. They're the ones keeping their promises with patients and maintaining that trust and really just being that shoulder of support for them. The technology is there to serve them. The technology is there to serve them. And then in a separate category, it's also there for uh, helping to do like remote patient monitoring. So if you think of like connected devices, like blood pressure cuffs, glucometers, weighted scales, we kind of got to get those out into the community. And that acts more of like gathering data in the community, but it only gets used if you have the trust, which comes from the care team. So from the very beginning, I knew this was going to be a very human-centric approach on, on our solution side. That said, we build a lot of technology to help drive this coordination. If you look at the state of the system right now, there's just no good resources that tell you that help match you to a housing shelter or a rehab facility. Each of them has their own nuances. You know, you could have a shelter that is only for men between the age of 18 to 40, and it's a sober facility. Or you could have another facility that's only for single moms. There's all these different types of variations. And ultimately, like it's an energy match, right? Like, like the person who's coming in has to kind of, for lack of a better word, like vibe with the right. individuals at the staff there. And they've got to be of the same culture and the same fit. You got to find the fit and it's, it's hard to do 
It's very human on human. We build the tools to make sure the follow-ups happen, to automate a lot of the outreaches, but to also pull in all this data and build tools for our community partners to make their operations easier so that they can integrate back into our care team and work with our clinicians. I was going to switch gears just a little bit because <laughs> I wanted to know, what made you want to take the jump into entrepreneurship anyway? Yeah. So I always knew that I wanted to try and start something on my own, call it a chip on a shoulder or just wanting to prove it to myself. And, you know, as I started to work it forward and build up these capabilities of saying, hey, look, now I know how the technology here runs. I think there's an opportunity to bring it to more clinics. You know, I've always thought about how do you access and bring technology to others has always been kind of at the top of my mind. And then even when you think about things like AI, which we do incorporate into our own systems here, that chip on my shoulder, plus the idea of just getting this out to more folks. You know, after living in India, I have a couple of stories. Like why I do this work is it's really because of my mom. She was a teacher. We'd go to school every day and Every day, we'd have four egg sandwiches in our car. One for me, one for my mom, and then two for these two children that lived under the bridge that we passed under to get to school. And every day, we'd, we'd hand out, we'd meet them, we'd hand out the two sandwiches, and we'd go off on our day. And that's just my mom. That's just who she is. And so one day, we came there, and one of the kids, only one of the kids came up to us, and it turned out that his sister had gotten hit by a bus the day earlier. And like very nonchalantly, she died. And, and that's what he said. He was like, she's, she's gone. And it was this moment of realizing that there's so many folks out there that, ha- that, you know, between the haves and the have nots, and I'm in a privileged situation to be in, you know, to be part of the haves. I, it's kind of a duty to give back to others. This facing life and death, you know, as, as a kid, you always kind of have those moments. And so I knew I wanted to do this work and I knew that no one else was doing it. And I had this chip on my shoulder saying, why not? Why not me? I know this is, <laughs> I know this has got to happen in the world. It's going to be an inevitability. Like we have to increase the number of clinics we have. In the country, we have to increase, you know, improve convenience for access to care. Why not me? And then the first person I convinced to join this, to join me was Cassie, my co-founder. So she got proposed to about two weeks. She got, she got proposed to. I was like, oh man, she's going to make a bunch of big life decisions right now. I got to jump on this. So about two days later, I reached out and said, congratulations. Let's meet for lunch. And then she likes to say that was the week that she got proposed to twice. Because I was the I proposed her for her to be my co-founder, and it she was the first one I had to convince, and now now we're now we're cruising. But but it was that was a little bit of the the first journey of how we got here. <laughs> and since this is such a mission driven organization, and obviously the story you just shared, this is so important to you on a personal level, and not just on say a financial gain level or sort of that kind of thing as well. Does that weigh on you as you're building that you are tackling this problem that, like you mentioned, can be kind of life or death for the people it impacts? Or does it fuel you on the other side? Like, does it sometimes, I don't know, does it weigh on you or does it kind of like drive you even harder to succeed here? Oh, yeah, those go hand in hand. It's exactly what you said. It does. It is very heavy. Like you have situations, I remember about a year ago, I want to say, Cassie called me on the phone and I was, I was getting on a train and she was just bawling. She was, she was, she was crying. She was, something had, had happened. And one of our patients who was living on the streets in San Bernardino in Southern California, experiencing homelessness, uh, had tried to get back to her tent and the city had removed her tent and all of her belongings. Basically everything this person owned, right, was gone. And Cassie's on the other side of the phone trying to talk to her, just trying to get her, get her out of the heat. 
And so she finally, you know, we got her to a library where she could get out of the heat. But it was this emotional toll of we're trying to help folks and we just have so many things fighting against us. Like in this case, it was the police department that took it down. Like I'm not pointing any fingers here, but it's just a broken system that we have. Right. This individual was trying to get better. She was interviewing for jobs. She was she was taking care of herself. She was on a good path. And then this happened. And so, yes, the emotional toll is very, very real. But it does fuel me. That is that is actually one of the largest drivers. And one of the things that when we do recruiting, it's a top item. Like, are you mission-driven? Do you care about this population? Do you care about others? Would you break through walls to get through the red tape that's just inherent in the system by just constantly showing up the next day? for this person. And so, so yeah, it is, it is a lot, you know, this, this work is hard. I think it's got a lot more emotional toll than say other, you know, kind of other technology businesses out there, but you know, what you're doing every day is making a really, really big impact on those folks. What would you say is an early failure that you had while you were building this company and, and what did you learn from it? (laughs) Yeah, all the, (laughs) I've failed so many times. The biggest ones I would say is in healthcare, you really have to have a good understanding of the economics and the financial model. There's so many things broken. It's easy to go in kind of starry eyed and go, I'm going to make this experience better. And then you realize, oh, there's a reason this experience isn't better. It's because no one's going to pay for it or the amount they're going to pay for it isn't going to cover the cost of what it means to like increase in this and do everything you wanted to do from a product perspective. And so that was probably the first <laughs> the first way we entered the market, very starry-eyed, saying, hey, look, we're just going to make things better. We're going to build good tooling. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the buyer just wasn't willing to pay that amount, and we had to pivot on all of it. And that was a good pivot because it earned us the right to kind of see the writing on the wall from a regulatory perspective. But that was like one big area there. And then the other is a lot of leadership. You know, just as the team's been growing, as I've been scaling, trying to scale myself, my leadership style has been adapting. I can, I'm very aware of my strengths and weaknesses and, you know, things like impatience on the weaknesses side, I've got to keep control of, I've got to, you know, just, just manage your your own self-awareness and your own self-management and self-regulation has definitely been an area of growth for me. So I feel like a very different person than who I was two years ago, for example. Yeah, that's actually a nice segue into my next question, which was going to be more about your leadership style and company culture. And so I guess starting there, how would you kind of define more of your leadership style and how do you keep like positive company morale while you're dealing with such heavy issues? Yeah, I mean, the the, the heavy issues kind of feed into that, that morale because we know, we're, you know, it's all about impact. And by screening from that from the very beginning, we have a team of incredibly mission-driven individuals. Like They're amazing wake up every day to care for our patients and just push. From from other folks, we kind of have you know an advantage for other companies because we just have such a strong mission-driven culture that everyone can rally around. So if something's going wrong, we have a team that doesn't run, we double down and we say, all right, how are we going to get this done for our patients? And that's just a reflection of Cassie and myself, really. And in terms of my own leadership style, you know, just learning how to be a good manager learning how to work with executives that are significantly more experienced than I am. My style is very much a serving leadership style. So I I like to think of, you know, I'm not everyone's boss. Everyone else is my boss, so to speak. How do I work for them and make sure that they have everything they need? Then on the other side, it's, it's this notion of conscious leadership. I don't know if the 15 commitments of conscious leadership was a book I read right as we were starting to scale. And it's, you know, when you read a book and it's just the right right place, right time, and it really resonates. You know, I was a tuning fork and I just resonated with it. And it's all about 
you know, being aware of your own emotional state at the time, you know, because things can get really, really hard when you're scaling. Small mistakes can feel personal and you can never get into that point of thinking it's malicious. It's not malicious. Someone else is just moving really fast. So I always like to say, hey, really seek to understand. And if you can't describe why someone else feels that way, then you're not listening hard enough. You're not listening hard enough and you can't truly empathize there. And it's a never-ending journey. I feel like I'm just getting into a new version of, of who, I, who I need to be as CEO with this new round of financing. And now we're kicking off board meetings and all of that. So I'm excited for it, but it feels very different from the early days of just trying to see what product you know, is going to work in the market. And I know we're almost coming up on time. And since you just mentioned kind of like going into this next stage of the business with this new round of financing, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier that you guys are hoping to expand into at least one other state next year. But what is on the roadmap. What does the next few years look like for you guys? Yeah, if you look at the, the far off vision here that we're building towards is how do you turn these community organizations into clinics? How do you do more of that, right? How do you retrofit them with connected devices, with telemedicine capabilities, even distribution of different goods like you know cell phones for those that need it or programmatic debit cards? That's a really big area. So this product expansion to get more tooling out into the community to build out this, this connected network. So you have a care plan that's shared across all of these community organizations and we're all pushing a person's health in the same way together. That's one big component of it. That product expansion is going to be massive, you know, especially with all of these chat GPT, everything that's happening out there, you can use it to assist the care team in all these ways. Like how do you, you know, assisting them for communicating with patients, just scaling out how many patients one person can work with. So ton of effort there on the product expansion side. And then the other on just um, state expansion, we're talking to a variety of them right now with different state Medicaid directors and state Medicaid departments to figure out which ones are the right ones that are, are primed for our model here. What that looks like, it's a, lot, it's a lot of enterprise B2B type sales motions here, telling them, hey, look, this is what we're doing. Here's the results out in California. We have strong results. We have a 45% reduction in emergency department visits. So we're seeing you know almost... One of every two emergency department visits just won't happen anymore if you have us implemented. And we're driving dollars to these local organizations. Like we're, we're helping you reinvest here. So that's, that's the big part of it is just that product expansion and then talking to more state departments here. Well, cool. Well, I think we're pretty much right at time. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Neil. This has been fun. Awesome. Becca, Dom, it was a, it was a pleasure. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And I'll just say that, you know, at the end of the day, we are just trying to go to where these individuals are, go to where they work, where they live, where they play, and help get them really convenient access to care because they need the support. There's just too many things going on in their life. And hopefully with the tech platform that we're building and the tooling that we give to these community organizations, we can get them the dollars they need to care for the people around them. So that was our conversation with Neil. And I know one thing I was thinking about going into it, Dom, was that the company he sort of, I don't want to say spun out from because I feel like that's a weird term to use when it's not like you learned the tech from the company. Like if you spin out of Tesla and do something in the EV space, like that feels like a spin out. But he used to work at Forward, which is like a subscription healthcare service, which they don't take insurance. And I've always kind of had a little bit of qualms with their model. And it seems a little predatory of people who don't have insurance and yet better healthcare to people who can already afford it. So it's really interesting that like that's the company he came from. 
to sort of start this company, which is so mission-driven and has such a clear need in the community and the communities that they're working with. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, when you put it in that context, it does seem like this company is, in a sense, not like the opposite of it, but it seems like it is very mission-driven. It's really trying to target people who need help the most and who are often, you know, forgotten about. I really, really liked the company. I was thinking the whole time, though, when you have companies that are this mission-driven, how do they make money? No, see, that's what's funny about stuff like this. Well, funny is not the right word, but I feel like the building companies that essentially get paid back through like Medicaid and other government programs is such like a sneaky way to do something that is so mission driven, but still like be able to make the financial side work. Because I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, I even been talking about a lot of government programs, even talking to like small business loan um, originators and stuff like that. It's like getting stuff like this through the government is really hard, but it's there. So it's like a lot of people just don't try to access it for good reason. I mean, it's tough. And what if you're not successful and you just spent two years even just trying to figure out how to get access? So it's like people like Neil who like build companies off of these sort of programs where like the money's right there. It's just hard to get to. It's like that kind of stuff just feels very, it's like a solid way to go about it. But it's hard. It's hard to build that way. Yeah, it's hard. Takes a lot of time. You probably have to put up with a lot of just... You have to have a lot of patience, I would say. For sure. But what were your thoughts in terms of relationship to investors and this? So that part was interesting to me because, I don't know, I guess maybe these are investors who understand that like government piece of it better. Because I'm sure he probably talks to investors who are like, public money, helping people who don't have money. Like, they're like, where's the business? I know, right? But it's like, because of that government piece, it's like, that's where the business is. But I'm I'm sure they had some hurdles trying to fundraise because there are probably so many VCs who, again, don't want to look into it themselves, which is fair. It's complicated and tough and is swayed by what politicians in each individual state think about Medicaid and sort of what they want to do with Medicaid. And it is definitely a more, I would say, of all the regulatory goalposts, Medicaid probably moves a bit more than a lot of the others. I know I can definitely see an investor saying like, okay, so we're helping people, but like, where's the, you know, the capitalism in this? Like, yeah, where's, I don't know, the for profit or something like that. Where's the home run? The home run. And I'm like, why can't we just like help people? I really wanted to know about the differences in like the red state, blue state divide, because coming from Florida, I'm like, I already know probably some mess was said. So I was, I actually really liked how he spoke about that or was really honest about that there is like this skepticism, which I also found was interesting that there is a divide, even with this issue, in terms of who's skeptical of technology like this and helping and who's embracing it. Yeah. And I feel like it's good to hear that they've like had the success they've had so far because he kept bringing up trust. And that definitely seems to be such a thing here because not speaking with direct knowledge from these types of situations. But if you are in one of those vulnerable populations, I can imagine you feel pretty beaten down by like a lot of different organizations and companies and sort of just things that have happened in your life. Like it's hard to get yourself comfortable to just like try something new or go somewhere new, work with someone on something you're not familiar with. So the fact that they like have been able to kind of like get so many people enrolled and on board already is promising that they can get people to trust them. Yeah, and I know that there's like a lot of drama with Medicaid, Medicare. There's always drama in the U.S. health system. There's always drama. Always drama. But it was encouraging to hear that the government is looking at adopting technology to 
help make this mess better. You know, because every time we hear about the government, it's always some mess. And so we never hear about the good things that allegedly are happening. And so this was, you know, it's it's good to know that they're aware of innovation and they too want innovation. Shout out. No, it makes me think of that tweet that I think, honestly, I saw for the first time because you posted it, where it's like all the news out of the U.S. is like the U.S. gets rid of wheelchair ramps because they weren't in the Bible. And like all the yeah. news out of Europe is like Finland gets free ice cream. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's like every time it's the reverse of that, I'm like, oh, lively. Like, like this look at is us. great. Look at us, Americans. I also do kind of love the concept of like, this could totally be a nonprofit. But I feel like I like when companies like this who are so mission-driven do make the financials work and sort of like do take that for-profit route because it encourages other people to do it who wouldn't necessarily have the resources or the ability to just be like, yeah, I'm going to start this nonprofit that isn't going to make a ton of money, but it does this great public good. Like it's good to show people that the model of for-profit mission-driven companies works because then it just gets more people to get in the space themselves. But how far, how much do you think that this can scale? Because it seems like he has to strike a balance here. How scalable is this balance in this economy capitalist system that we live in? No, for sure. I think it's like one of those things where I probably, like I think if I fully went into the scale of how big like Medicaid is, I feel like it would surprise me. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those areas where if I actually looked into it, I'd be like, oh, wow, this is like way bigger than I thought it was. Because he kind of like alluded to that of how like this is actually like a really huge space within healthcare to build in. And like we just don't hear about it very much. So it's hard sometimes to like have a good idea of like how big that market really is. But I mean, I think how much they'll scale is fully dependent on the U.S. government and sort of how things change. And it's also interesting because we've been talking to a lot of healthcare companies. And I do think this is kind of the first one that we've come across that is targeting Medicaid because everything else is kind of working with hospitals and doctors and private practices and, you know, utilizing AI and stuff. But this is something that does target a persistent issue that, you know, I even remember Medicaid being spoken about on the TV when I was like in high school and middle school. So like it's like always been something that people have spoken about. And so it's good to see innovation in this space because I hate to always bring it back to the U.S. healthcare system needing help. But but the U.S. healthcare system makes it so easy to constantly, we just have to bring it back. Like it just, it is never doing what it should be. Maybe that's what they want. I think the U.S. healthcare system wants people to make the tech, help them. They want help. They're asking for it. They're very much asking for it. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori-Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. 